You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us turn together to the Old Testament. We turn, first of all, to Genesis chapter 12, the verses 1 to 7. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moriah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then we turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, the verses 11b to 16. And here the Lord is speaking through the prophet Nathan to King David. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul whom I remove from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. I preach to you this morning from the word of our God as you find it in Matthew chapter 1, the verses 1 to 17. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, 
And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azar, Azar the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations from all to Abraham, to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, tomorrow morning, some of you will be sitting in Bible class in Credo Christian High School. And just imagine if your teacher walked in the door and said, I want you to write a gospel introduction. You are to pretend that you are introducing a gospel account with a difference. So just how are you going to introduce your Savior to a waiting world? How would you describe the birth, the life, the ministry of Jesus Christ, how would you start to present him? Now, I think you'll recognize that's a fair bit of a challenge, and how does one meet that kind of a challenge? I suppose you might want to take a leaf out of the book of Luke, Luke, who begins his introduction by talking about the background of Jesus, at least a little bit about Zachariah, Elizabeth, Mary, and their circumstances, and even somewhat about Joseph. Or maybe you want to aim a little higher and take a page out of the Gospel of John, who begins with a very lofty and majestic introduction in the beginning. Or maybe after a while you've scratched your head long enough and you say to yourself, forget it, I'm going to do like Mark. I'm simply going to forget all about these birth narratives and I'm going to hop right in to the actual work and ministry of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So you see, there are these different approaches, all kinds of different approaches. But you know, I guarantee you this morning that there is one particular approach that you will not take, and that is the approach of Matthew. For we've read together Matthew chapter 1, at least the first part. And what do you find there but names, names, and more names about Fifty are mentioned, some we know, some we don't, some are popular, some are not, some are known, some are unknown, some we admire, well, some we don't know about. But you know, when you add it all up, what really Matthew's introduction spells, at least to our eyes, is boring, boring, boring. Who in the world begins the greatest story of the greatest ministry in the world? With a genealogy. What a disaster. What a turn off. And instantly, what a way to get an F. So I don't think any of you students would go Matthew's route, would you? He's not, we would say, a good model to emulate or imitate. After all, 
And that's also our theme of this morning. Is this any way to begin a gospel? We're going to see four things. Actually, you'll notice in your liturgy sheet it says three things, but that was kind of early on in the week, and in the meantime, something else crept in. So actually, we have four things. Surprised by hope is first. Amazed by design is second, and you might want to write that in if you're taking notes. Gripped by love is third, and humbled by grace is fourth. So surprised by hope, amazed by design, gripped by love, humbled by grace. Oh, beloved, is this any way to begin a gospel? You know, as that question bounces around in our minds, another question may arise as well, and, and that is the question, you know, if the way that, that Matthew begins his gospel here is kind of a dud, what does that say about the prime author behind his gospel? Because, of course, we believe that behind the writing of Matthew, there is the work and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So if we give Matthew a failing grade, should the Holy Spirit not also get a failing grade? And that, in turn, leads us to do some more hard thinking, because, you know, Matthew may be a man, but the Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune God. So you want to think twice before you give the Holy Spirit an F. And indeed, before you do that, you might want to take out your shovels and dig a little deeper. And then when we dig a little deeper, we do see some surprising things. First of all, look at the opening verse here. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's how Matthew begins. Why does Matthew begin... With genealogy. What's with genealogy is period. Well, to, to understand that, you need actually to go to the book on genealogy, which actually is the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, because the book of Genesis actually is a Bible book filled with genealogies. You could turn, for example, to Genesis 2 and verse 4, where it says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth. Notice the Niv translates, this is the account. The older translations have, this is the genealogy of the heavens and the earth. So sometimes the original Hebrew word toledoth is translated as genealogy, sometimes as account, sometimes even as, as history. But the entire first book of Genesis is built around this idea of ten totodoths, ten genealogies. There's the genealogy of heaven and earth. There's the genealogy of, of Noah, for example, of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, of Shem, of Terah, of Isaac, of Jacob, and so forth. All these genealogies. And now, beloved, look at the first book of the New Testament. How does it begin? The genealogy of Jesus Christ. And that should right away make you think it's like Genesis all over again. It's as if the book of Genesis is continuing on here. 
And you can be sure that every Jew who read this particular gospel of Matthew, and Matthew directs his gospel, especially at Jewish Christians, every Jew would immediately pick up on this. Hey, Matthew's picking up where Genesis left off. We're getting a new book of beginning. We're getting the book of the 11th Toledos, so to speak. But, you know, that's not all a good Jew would conclude. He'd also look at how this Toledoth unfolds. And, you know, some of them are very short and very precise. Some of them are kind of long. The Toledoth of Isaac, for example, the Toledoth of, of Jacob are much more detailed and so forth. It seems the Holy Spirit decided to say little about some of these people and a lot about others. And whatever he records is for our profit and somehow for our benefit, and we need to learn from that. But you know, these Toledos summarize not only some of the highlights that the Spirit pulls out of their lives, these Toledos also all end in exactly the same way. How do they end? They all end in death. Look at Genesis 5. That's perhaps the best example. Verse 5, Adam lived 930 years and then he died. Verse 8, Seth lived 912 years and then he died. Verse 11, Enosh lived 905 years and then he died. Verse 14, Kenan lived 910 years and then he died. And the same is said of all the rest of them, except for Enoch, verse 17, 20, 27, 31. And if you go a little further in Genesis 9, Noah lived 950 years and he died. You see, there is this constant refrain in the book of Genesis when it comes to genealogies, and that's the words, and then he died. They all died. With the exception of Enoch, and we're not quite sure what happened with him, except that he was taken up to the Lord. They all died. All these patriarchs, these leaders, these great men, they all suffered the same outcome, and they died. And now look at Matthew. Look at what he says about Jesus Christ and his genealogy. And look especially at where it supposedly ends. Look at the last verse of chapter 28, verse 20. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see, the last word of this genealogy is not, and then he died. But the last word is, and then he lives. Yes, he died. But he rose again. He lives as victor over the grave. He lives forever and ever. The endless cycle of death has been broken. And when you see that, And when you think of that, what you see is a message of hope. At last, God has brought the death slayer into the world. At last, the victor over the grave is here. At last, someone great 
is here who is always going to be with us. Truly. What a relief and what a miracle. And what a cause for rejoicing. And you may know, beloved, how Matthew's first readers needed an injection of all of that. You see, hope was very sparse in their day. God's people were an occupied people. The Romans ruled the land. The Pharisees ruled the church. The tax collectors ruled the economy. Fear and misery ruled many hearts. But now Matthew writes to them. And he tells them right off, right in the very beginning about the hope of resurrection, the hope of a conquered grave, the hope of eternal life. Follow Jesus, the living one, and you will live as well. And so, beloved, we say that in this genealogy, the first thing Matthew does is he surprises us with hope. But, of course, that's not all, because in the verses 2 to 16, there are all kinds of names. You know, it begins in verse 2 with Abraham, and it goes all the way to verse 16 with Jesus Christ. And if you ask, why is Abraham in this particular list? Well, because he's the father of all believers, and because God had once said to him, as we read in Genesis 12, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And how are all people on the earth going to be blessed through Abraham? Well, they're going to be blessed through Abraham's great descendant, Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. One day, Abraham's great son will shine his redeeming work on many people and light up lives and hearts everywhere. He'll become a source of unimaginable blessing as he is today to many, including us. But then look, beloved, it's not just about Abraham. He's not the only one who's going to receive a great son. It's also about David. Indeed, notice that Matthew records the account of both the son of Abraham and the son of of David. And so Matthew is telling his readers not just about the coming of a great Messiah, he's also telling them about the coming of a great king and kingdom. The great descendant of Abraham is coming, the great king in the line of David is coming as well. And then notice, notice especially that Matthew directs our attention at David. He talks about this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Notice, time-wise, he should have said, the son of Abraham, the son of David, because Abraham was first. But he turns that around. It's the son of David and the son of Abraham. So why we ask this special emphasis upon David? Well, notice something else as well in this particular passage, and that are all these names and how these names are divided. You basically have three sections here, and each section has 14 names to it. Now, that raises the question, why do we have 14? 14 generations from Abraham to David, 
14 generations from Solomon to Jeconiah, 14 generations from Jeconiah to Jesus. But you need to understand that the number 14 is the number of David. If you take David's Hebrew name, it's the fourth letter, the sixth letter, and the fourth letter. Four, six, four equals what? Fourteen, right? So in the Jewish alphabet and numerology, David's name represents 14. But you know, that's not all. For, for notice that Matthew speaks not just of one 14, but he speaks of three. Verse 17. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Okay, we understand why there's 14. Why are there three 14s? Why is the list divided in this way? Well, again, it helps if you're a Jew. Because if you multiply 3 times 14, what do you get? 42, right? Or, if you want, 6 times 7 or 7 times 6. Now, what is 42? 42 in Scripture, beloved, always represents unfinished business. Seven multiplied six times refers to the same thing. It refers to an interim period. Look, for example, at the book of Revelation. It becomes very clear there, chapter 11, verse 2, chapter 13, verse 5, the use of 42 months as an incomplete span of time. So Matthew, in referring to the number 14, as well as to 14 times 3 or 42 or 6 times 7, is saying actually that this time, this entire era, before the birth of Jesus Christ, is in some sense incomplete. It's all preliminary. It's all introductory. It's all preparatory. But a preparatory, introductory, preliminary to what? Why, beloved, to the coming of the final seven. It's the final seven. Who is the final seven? Who is the one who brings all of history, seven times seven, 49, to its fulfillment and completion? Who is the one who ushers in the final age, the seventh age? Why, none other than Jesus Christ, the son of David. You see what Matthew's saying here? He's saying, folks, this is a time not only for hope, but this is a time to be amazed. Because this is the time of fulfillment. Here and now, all of God's plans are going to come to climax, to fruition. There is reason in this design. There is structure in this plan. There is meaning in all of these numbers. 
There is beauty in all the things that God does and plans. And so that leads us to a third thing. Look once again, this time, at all of these names. And look at them closely. And you know, together, all of these 42 names, they represent a long history. A history filled with ups and a lot of downs, some achievements, but a lot of failures. Some examples of rectitude, but a lot of examples of corruption as well. There's faith here, but sad to say, there's a lot more faithlessness. In the first 14, we recognize some names like Abraham, Isaac, David, Boaz, but just as many are unknown. And in the, fourth, the second 14, we recognize most of these names because we're familiar with the books of Kings and Chronicles. And we know some reigned well, and some were flops. And in the third 14, well, we head off, you might say, in the land of the unknown and the obscure. We recognize Jeconiah, Zerubbabel, and finally, Joseph, but everybody in between, forget it. We don't know any of these folks. They're a mystery to us. So what do all of these names tell you? And why does God bother to give us all these names? Why do we have to read them? Why bother? Well, you might say, beloved, this is the Lord saying to us, you want to see my love in action? You want to see what my love is really like? I'll show you. And then he gives you one name after another. One mixed bag after another. And it just keeps on marching on and on. What does that tell you? Doesn't that tell you? Doesn't that just show you how, how stubborn our God can be when it comes to his love? He doesn't just say to, for example, David, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to make a commitment to you and then forget all about it. He doesn't say to Abraham, you're going to be a blessing and then a couple of generations, well, sorry, I made a mistake. I'm going to try over. Our God keeps his word. And he especially keeps his love word. I will love you. I will bless you. I will bring your line to fulfillment and to climax. You see the nature here of the love of our God. And how we need to be reminded of that even today. Sometimes when life does us in, when we're hit by one attack or obstacle or setback after another, we wonder. We wonder whether life is worth living and we wonder, what is God doing? Why do we have to go through all these ups and downs? Why is it a case of two steps forward, one step back? 
Or sometimes one step forward and two steps back. My beloved, all of that shows you something about the tenacity of the love of our God. He didn't forget what he promised Abraham. He didn't forget what he promised David. He saw it through in spite of every obstacle, every challenge. He gripped them with his love. And he never let them go. He brought them all the way to the Christ. And when he finally brings them to the Christ, then they're home. Home at last. You see, Matthew's trying to say, people, you are not only been surprised by hope, you've not only been amazed by the design of God's purposes and plan, but you're also, realize it very well, being gripped in the love of God. Throughout the ages and the centuries, He keeps His word. He doesn't change he holds on to you as no one else can. But then, beloved, there's also a fourth thing. And it also is something rather odd. If you look at all of these names in this genealogy, you will find mostly the names of men and the names of a few women. Now, as we mentioned, the names of these men... Well, they're nothing often to write home about. Judah, Rehoboam, Abijah, Uzziah, Manasseh, Jeconiah. My, I'm not sure I want these characters in my genealogy, but they're there in the genealogy of Christ. And you know, if you think that this genealogy contains some questionable male characters, you know, the list of the women is even more eye-popping. There are only five of them. Tamar, she's mentioned in verse 3. She's the one who stars in that X-rated chapter 38 of Genesis. The one who plays the prostitute in order to claim her rights and the rights of her children. Now, Tamar, you might say, is a temporary prostitute, but then we have Rahab, and she's a full-time prostitute as far as we know. She, she was part of Jericho's red light district. And she's there as well. And then you come to another dubious name, Ruth. Now, we've been dealing with Ruth, and we'll deal with Ruth again. Pastor DeYoung will deal with Ruth this afternoon. And she seems to be a nice lady, but don't forget, she's a Moabitess. And if you're a Moabitess, it says very clearly in Deuteronomy 23, you can't enter the assembly of the Lord until the 10th generation. In other words, you got a long, long time to wait before you can get into the tabernacle and worship there. And you know, then there's another shady lady mentioned in verse 6, and she's not even mentioned by name. She's simply called Uriah's. Wife. 
you might wonder, is this a bit like Matthew taking a sword and kind of sticking it in and twisting it around a bit? Uriah's wife, that's all. And that's all we need to hear because when we hear Uriah, we immediately think of deception, of lies, of lust, and of murder and adultery. And finally, there's a fifth woman as well, and she's called Mary. Who's Mary? What do you know about Mary? The Roman Catholic Church says it knows a lot about Mary, but it can't find it in the Bible. We know very little about Mary. Mary's a nobody. Young girl, as far as we can tell, still wet behind the ears. You see, beloved, this is quite a list. Quite a list of men, but, but even and even more so, quite a list of women. And it's a list which is mostly scandalous. Here, the great son of David, the great son of Abraham comes into the world. And who does he have as far as female descendants and mothers are concerned? Who are the mothers in Israel that are highlighted in his family tree? A desperate, do-anything woman, a prostitute, a foreigner, an adulteress, and a nobody. What a list. What an embarrassing list. We're almost tempted to take out the magic eraser, aren't we? Scotch that one, and that one, and that one, and that one. Sanitize the list. Make it respectable. Make it nice. But Matthew doesn't. And Matthew doesn't because Matthew has been taught by the Spirit not to go in that direction. Matthew is being taught, put it there, hang it out, let everyone see, let them all read it. But why? Why does Matthew insist on hanging out, and why does the Holy Spirit insisting on hanging out all this dirty laundry? Because, beloved, he wants to teach us about the meaning of grace. Of grace. Of great grace. Abundant grace. Amazing grace. Matthew wants to remind us that Jesus Christ comes in the fullness of time. Not for the new and the noble and the nice and the notable. Now, Matthew's saying he's coming for sinners, for people who live messed up lives and have messed up marriages and messed up families. He's coming for scandalous people. Because if women like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and even Mary can make it into his family tree, that's simply like saying everybody can come in. And belong and be part of this family and receive this grace and this love and this mercy. Even you and I, we can claim it. 
because of the grace of Almighty God. And isn't that humbling? Isn't that all a reminder as it says in John Newton's song, Grace will lead me home. Here in Matthew 1, we're also humbled by the wondrous grace of Almighty God. And now, beloved, perhaps, just perhaps, you can begin to understand why Matthew begins his gospel in this very unique, some would say offensive manner. He does it to teach us some great lessons about the hope of God, the plan of God, the love of God, and the grace of God. Matthew may get an F from the world, but he deserves to get an A from all of us. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.